You ready to get into the Word of God? Huh? Yeah? You sound very convincing to me. Absolutely. You ready? Okay. So God has brought you here, because I don't believe anything happens by chance. God has brought you here. He wants you to hear the Word of God this morning. In fact, He's going to speak to you this morning through His Word. Okay? That's how He speaks to us, beloved. You're not going to hear some audible voice. You're going to hear Him speaking to you through His Word this morning. And and this morning, we're going to be where we were last week, still in Romans chapter 11. So if, you're, if you have a Bible, turn there to Romans chapter 11. Uh, if you're using one of those blue church Bibles located underneath the seats around you, you can flip those open to page 947. That'll bring you, 947, that'll bring you to our text this morning. We're talking about Israel, okay? And I said last week, I'll say it again, you might think, what does this have to do with me? It has plenty to do with you, beloved, plenty to do with you. I hope you, as we continue to move through and progress through this chapter, I hope you see that, that even as a Gentile, in fact, as a Gentile, a Christian Gentile, the situation with Israel has much to do with you, all right, the nation of Israel. So uh, I hope you will understand that. So when Paul, let me give you some intro before we read the, the passage this morning. When Paul wrote Romans, when he wrote this letter, the universal church or the churches at large, or along with that local church in Rome to whom Paul was writing this letter, was by and large predominantly made up of Gentiles. Gentiles. You understand the distinction, right? We are Gen, um, probably for the most part, we are Gentiles in this room. We are not. Jewish people, we are Gentiles, okay? So the rest of the nations are categorized into one big bucket, Gentiles, and then you have the Jewish nation. You with me? All right, so the church was made up mostly of Gentiles, right, excellent. Within the church, Jewish believers or followers of Jesus Christ were, back in the first century, and even now remain to be the minority, the minority, Now, if you are aware of Israel's history and their unique and special relationship with God, and you are aware of the history of the Gentiles and their long and dark relationship with paganism and idolatry, okay, paganism, they didn't worship the one true God, they had a whole plethora of gods from from which they chose to worship, okay? That's that's the history of these two nations or peoples, okay? If you know that history, then what I just told you concerning the fact that the church, in the church, Jewish people are the minority, that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. But sadly, the nation of Israel, God's chosen nation, the Jewish people, the people, beloved, to whom God promised the Messiah, He promised the Messiah to that nation, and it was through those people that the Messiah came. Huh? In case we forget, Jesus was a Jew. He was a Jew. But those people had, those very people had and have rejected their Messiah and refused to believe and embrace the gospel or the good news concerning the divine person and saving work of the Messiah, or as we refer to him, the Lord Jesus Christ. In a real turn of events, beloved, 
Gentiles, Gentiles who had throughout history rejected the God of Israel and could have justly been characterized as the very enemies of God's people, okay? And as such, the enemies of God himself. Those are the very people who have embraced Israel's Messiah through faith. You get that? Yeah. And and have become now the blessed children of God. While Israel, on the other hand, the people that God chose for himself, stubbornly refused him and were unwilling to believe resulting in Gentile majority in the church, just as it is today. You with me so far? Okay. As we continue to look at Romans, you should also be aware of the fact that the overwhelming majority of Gentile believers, okay, because that was, that, was, that was what was going on. There was an overwhelming majority of Gentile believers and the influence of sinful pride. Sinful pride. Beloved, I could pause here, but I don't really have the time. This is dangerous even to do this. But pride really is at the root of all sin. It really is. Uh, Pride destroys relationships. It destroys churches. It ruins us. It ruins marriages. Pride. And it was sinful pride within the Gentile community, believing community, beloved, uh, that gave way to a certain arrogance uh, among the Jewish or among the Gentiles towards the Jewish people. Why? Because they, the Jews, unlike the Gentiles, right, they had not rejected their Messiah. The Jews had, and they hadn't. And that, because of sinful pride, caused them to look down upon the nation. Even if they were a believer, they still looked down upon them because they looked at them as a whole. Look at your people. Look what you had. And you rejected your Messiah. But look at us. Look at us. We embraced him. Hmm? Yeah. And so Paul writes, and you'll see it as we move throughout the book. Paul writes chapters 9 through 11 of Romans uh, for one reason he writes it, is to rein in this sinful pride, to rein it in. By, by doing, and he does it this way. This is how he does it. By removing any assumption that may have existed, and by the way, the same assumption exists today among people, Christian people, He was going to remove any assumption that God had abandoned his people Israel. He's removing that. And also, he did this. He's going to show Gentile Christians the significance for themselves, for us, of Israel's restoration to divine favor. It's very significant for you and I, beloved, who call Christ our Lord. So then, beloved, Paul aims in Romans to do this, show his readers that God has not abandoned the nation of Israel, but also he has a great and glorious future in store for them, a future you and I as Christians are connected to in the wonderful and amazing plan of God. Now, 
We're almost to this text, okay? All intro so far. As we learned last week in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 11, and here it is, that God in these present days has chosen by grace only a remnant of Israel. Only a remnant of Israel. What's a remnant? Yeah, a small, small portion, okay? Or the Jewish people. He's chosen only a remnant to embrace the gospel, and he has hardened the rest for their willful disobedience, for their rebellious hearts, for their rejection of Messiah. How? By giving them a spirit of stupor. I'm just quoting the text that we looked at last week. Eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. In light of all that, should one assume then that God is finished with the Jews as a nation? Should we draw that assumption? You're answering that question. No, good, that's good. Some do. Some Christian brothers and sisters do draw that assumption. I strongly disagree with that. Beloved, I think what Paul says in these verses we are looking at today, it'll blow your mind. It'll blow your mind if you have never seriously, you may have just read over this, but if you've never seriously worked through it verse by verse, I think you're in for a, a nice ride this morning. So here we go. In the Bible, verse 11, let your eyes go there. We'll read down to verse 15. Paul says this. So I ask, did they, who's, who's they? Who might you think? It's Israel. It's Israel. That's the context. Did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Wow. Now, I've had all week, you know, to pour over this, so I'm all fired up, and I'm trying to bring you there with me, but it'll t- I know it takes a while. You guys got to warm up to it and everything, right? Okay. So, but that was amazing stuff we just read. Now, go back to verse 11. Uh, just look at it. Did they or Israel stumble in order that they might fall? Okay? Now, stumble, stumble, Right? in the context, clearly refers to the nation's rejection of her Messiah, Jesus Christ. That's the stumbling to which Paul is referring to. So Paul is asking this, if Israel's rejection has led to her fall, to her fall, and fall here speaks of uh, irreversible or permanent spiritual ruin. Irreversible or permanent spiritual ruin. Uh, The NIV translates this verse, verse 11, this way. 
to try to get at what the meaning here is. Again, I ask, did they stumble? We define stumbling. What was that? Rejection of her Messiah. Did they stumble, who's they? Israel, so as to fall beyond recovery. Beyond recovery. In other words, there's no, there is no more hope for this nation. That's the question. Okay? So, let me ask it a couple of different ways. So is Israel's dire situation, their spiritual situation, the situation they find themselves under right now, is it irreversible? Will they remain fixed in their unbelief? Is God's hardening of the nation a permanent situation? These are all different ways of trying to get at the same idea. And what is Paul's answer to the question that he poses? Who knows? I don't know. Maybe. Yes. Yes, it is. Yeah, they've fallen. No, right? That's not. What is the answer? What's it say? It is. It's no. Yeah, it is no. By no means. So, uh, not at all is how the NIV, not at all, or uh, absolutely not is another way to translate the Greek there. Absolutely not. Like, you got to be out of your mind to even think such things. Okay? Commenting on verse 11, one commentator writes this, the stumbling, listen, the stumbling is admitted. No one's saying they haven't stumbled. Paul's admitting it, right? An irreparable fall is not. He is not saying that that is what has occurred. And in doing that, then this is a broad hint right here, right at the beginning of the future salvation of Israel that Paul goes on to affirm, which he will very strongly in this chapter, okay? So, regardless of how things may have appeared, Paul assures his readers that Israel's rejection of Christ has not, hear me, has not forever excluded her from any special place in God's purposes. Rather, Paul says Israel's sin is the starting point of a process that will ultimately lead back to her being blessed once again. That's crazy. It's true, but it's just, I mean, it's mind-boggling. Their sin is the starting point of a process that God is overseeing that will ultimately lead back to her being blessed again. But in the middle of that process, what we're going to see is their sin has led to the blessing of the Gentiles. The blessing of the Gentiles. This is a, beloved, this is amazing. This is amazing. Now, let's look back at the text. Text, Verse 11, Paul says, So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. We've got it, Paul. By no means. All right. Rather, instead of that being the case, through their trespass, salvation has come to the who? Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. So what was Israel's trespass or transgression or sin to which Paul refers here? It's just what we've been talking about. It's, we've, if you've been with us as we're moving through this, these chapters, 9 and 10 and now 11, you know it is their stubborn or was their stubborn, continues to be their stubborn refusal of their Savior, her Messiah, her Messiah. But how did the refusal, listen, how did their refusal bring widespread salvation to the Gentiles? 
I am so glad you guys asked that question. So let's look at that this morning right now. Turn in your Bibles to the left, to Acts, to Acts. And uh, we'll begin in chapter 13. We're just going to read through several sections here in Acts. Page 922, if you're in those blue church Bibles. Okay. Now, Acts records the, the birth of the church on the day of Pentecost, and it, it records kind of the history and the progress of the church and how kind of things transpired. It's a fantastic book to read if you have not read it. Uh, here we're going to see the ministry of the Apostle Paul as he proclaims and preaches the gospel, but we're going to see what occurs when, when those events are happening. So we're just going to pick a few, but we'll begin with uh, verse 44. And I'm just going to read, try to limit my comments until we get to the end. So, here, it says, The next Sabbath, almost the whole city... What's the Sabbath? That's the day of worship for the Jewish people, okay? Saturday. So, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, okay? What's Paul talking about? Jesus, right. I said I would limit my comments, but I need to do that. So they were, they, they were contradicting what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas is a ministry partner with Paul, they spoke out boldly, saying it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Well, who's the you? The Jewish people, the Israel. Since you thrust it aside, And judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. Okay? Skip forward. Chapter 18. Chapter 18, verse 4. Now we're in Corinth. Here we go again. And he, that is Paul, reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath. Do you see a pattern? Okay? And tried to persuade Jews and Greeks When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, again, ministry partners of Paul's, Paul was occupied with the word, okay? So he had the Old Testament scriptures. He's occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. So he's saying, look, guys, look, here, the Christ, the Messiah, the one promised to us, the anointed one. It's him, the one that we, you guys murdered, It's him, the one who is resurrected. It's him. Okay, that's what he's doing. That's what he's, he's trying to, he's not just saying, believe me. He's saying, believe the scriptures. It's him. Six, and when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Chapter 19, chapter 19, next chapter, verse 8. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning 
and persuading them about the kingdom of God. We were talking about that this morning. But when the kingdom of God, beloved, the kingdom promised to the nation of Israel. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, the way was uh, a reference to Christians, the Christian movement. They referred to it as the way. Don't know why for sure. It could be because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Could be that. But speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years. So he moved from the synagogue to another place. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia A lot of Gentiles, beloved Jews as well, but a lot of Gentiles heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks or Gentiles, Gentiles. One more, okay? One more, Acts 28. Now this, turn there myself, Acts 28. This is Paul's uh, house imprisonment in Rome. House imprisonment in Rome. Now he's in Rome. We're going to pick it up in verse uh, 17. So he's there. He's been brought to Rome. This is where they're going to keep him for, for some time. He says this, After three days, being there, verse uh, 17, he, he called together the local leaders of the huh, Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, uh, though I had done nothing against our people, or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, let me go, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case, which is what the Jews wanted to see happen with him. (laughs) They wanted to see this man killed, okay? But because the Jews objected, I was compelled. They said, no, you've got to kill him. No. He said, I was compelled then to appeal to Caesar though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel. You see that? Don't miss that, beloved. It is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, he's talking, they're talking about Christianity, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. So as far as we know, everyone's against this. Our people are against this. But you know what? We'll listen to you. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. That's, okay, both those are references to the Old Testament. So he's taking them to the Old Testament. He's trying to show them the truth concerning this one. And some were convinced by what he said. Some, a small number, beloved, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. And here it is. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers, through Isaiah the prophet, 
Go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears, they can barely hear. And their eyes, they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the who? Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So now I just have to figure out where I am. So here I am. When Paul came, as you saw, to a city to preach the gospel, it was his custom to go to the synagogue. That was the place where the Jews gathered and proclaimed to them there at the synagogue that Jesus was the Christ, that the righteousness of God that they were seeking was available through him, through faith in him alone. It did not come through the law. It did not come through Judaism. It came through Jesus. Now, a small number of Jews did believe, beloved, the remnant. But for the most part, the Jewish people resisted and rejected the gospel. At that point, at that point, historically, Paul would turn his focus to the Gentiles. As a result, many Gentiles heard the gospel. But unlike the nation of Israel, according to the the saving grace and sovereign purposes of God, many Gentiles believed and were saved. And were saved. But now get this. Get this. Paul doesn't say in verse 11 of Romans 11 that through Israel's trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, period. Do you see a period after Gentiles? There's no period there. That's not the end of the statement. Rather, he says, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. What's it say? So as to make Israel jealous. What are we to make of that? Well, let's look at verses 13 and 14 for a moment. Let your eyes glance down. Paul says this there. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. Right? That's who he's talking to, Gentiles within Rome. And as much then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. All right. These verses help us understand uh, what, what Paul is talking about when he speaks of jealousy or even this idea of Gentiles coming to faith to make Israel jealous. In these verses, I believe Paul is pointing out that while his own ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles, as one uniquely called by God to be an apostle to the Gentiles, it was a ministry then largely devoted to the Gentiles. That does not 
mean that he believes, Paul believes, that God is through with the nation of Israel. It doesn't mean that. Or that Paul himself has given up on his own people. He has not. He has not. But rather, Paul magnifies his ministry to the Gentiles. That means he takes pride in it and he works hard at it. He works hard at what he was doing. Why? Well, in part, beloved, in part, and this is not the only reason, okay? So don't think that Paul did what he did among the Gentiles only for the purpose of making jealous, uh, making Israel jealous and perhaps seeing some of them saved, right? That's not the only reason. He cared about people. He knew that the gospel was for the entire world, all right? So he knew he was in conformity with the will of God when he preached to all the nations. But certainly one of his motivations in his work among the Gentiles was to make Israel jealous. He desires to make Jews jealous, having the hope that he will indirectly serve to bring some of them to salvation. And all of this was being done in accordance with the plan of God. We saw this in Romans 10, 19. We saw it there. Let me flip back here. Romans 10. Look at this. When we looked at this here, Paul quotes here from the Old Testament in 10, 19, but I asked, did Israel not understand First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. One commentator adds this suggestion here that I I tend to agree with about, um, about Paul. And he says this, that Paul sees himself up against a group of Gentile Christians who look down upon Israel in its hardened state and maintain that God has turned himself away from Israel once and for all, and that the salvation of the Gentiles through the gospel is the crown of all his works. That's not the case, beloved. This is, like, this is humbling. I'm going to tell you right now. This is humbling for us Gentiles. It's humbling if we, if we understand, if we get this. So what are we to make of the idea that salvation has come to the Gentiles in order to make Israel jealous, okay? What are we to make of that? Well, here's some helpful uh, comments I found, and I want to share them with you. One writer says this. Listen, listen. Although, because when you think of jealousy, do you think a good thing or a bad thing? Yeah, you, you think a bad thing, right? So the writer says, although jealousy is essentially a negative term, God's intention was for Israel's jealousy of Gentiles to be a positive stimulus to draw his people back to himself. God's ultimate purpose in setting Israel aside, and that's a temporary setting aside, beloved, was not to drive his people further away, but to bring them back to himself. He wanted to make them face their own sin and its consequences, to sense their alienation from God, and to recognize their need for the salvation that he now offered the Gentiles. As Jews see the Lord pour out the kind of blessings on the Gentile church that once were reserved for Israel, some of them desire that blessing for themselves and come to Jesus Christ, their spurned Messiah in repentance and faith. That happens with individual Jews throughout this age and will one day happen 
to the entire nation. One more, two more. As the Jews see the Gentiles enjoying the messianic blessings promised, first of all, to them, they will want those blessings for themselves. Paul hopes that his fellow Jews will become jealous and seek for themselves the blessings of this salvation. Huh? One more. Israel's stumbling has opened the way for Gentile salvation on such a scale as to make Israel envious. And they quote Acts. We read that passage. That envy, though it may involve bitterness, will ultimately contribute to drawing the nation to her Messiah. The longer the process goes on, and it's been going on for 2,000 years, the longer the process goes on, the more unbearable the pressure on Israel becomes. The bottom line is this. In the great plan of God, Gentile faith, it's glorious, right? Or aren't we glad for it? It's designed by God to make Israel jealous and ultimately draw her back to himself. Beloved, that's, that's something worth pondering, don't you think? It not only, listen, it not only stamps out the idea that God is done with Israel. It obliterates that idea. Why would you say such things? And it makes no sense in light of what we just read. Or that or that Gentiles have somehow replaced the Jews as the people of God, or that we now are the new Israel. All those things I just said to you are things that some Christians believe and teach. They're just not right. They're not accurate. Rather, as we've just seen, God's saving of Gentiles serves his divine purpose of bringing his chosen nation back to him. Now, I, I find that quite amazing. And I, I think it's also certainly humbling. Huh? It's certainly humbling, right? It, when you start to see the big picture, beloved, you realize, you know, this is not all about us. Right? That's kind of how we start to think. We start to get a little bit of arrogance. Oh, it's all about us. Or even just individually, this is all about me and what God's doing through me. God has way bigger plans, beloved. Way bigger. Ultimately, his plan is to put his glory on display. And he uses all means available to himself and his mighty wisdom to accomplish that great end. And we're part of that plan. He's going to save us, even though none of us deserved it. We were pagans, beloved. That's our, you want to know what our, or it, yeah, it was, paganism. That's the heritage of Gentiles. Not running towards God, running away from him and worshiping all kinds of crazy things other than God. That's our heritage. God says, watch this. Israel, you want to remain disobedient? You want to spurn me? Okay. I'm going to turn to this. The ones who persecuted you. The ones who persecuted me. I'm going to turn to the ones who have ran from me. And I am going to pour out my grace on them. I'm going to save them. I'm going to extend my mercy to these disobedient people. And I'm going to cause you to become jealous, Israel. See what they have? See the blessings I've poured out on them? 
Think about the blessings of having the indwelling spirit of God, beloved. Think about that blessing. Huh? That's the promise of the covenant, of the new covenant, promised to the nation of Israel. A blessing they are without at this very moment. And us messed up Gentiles are in possession of it. Unbelievable. But look, look at what else Paul says in this section. We're not done. We're not done. Romans 11 verse 12. And I bet you I might be raising questions in your mind, and that's good. That's good. I hope you have questions. I hope you seek out the answers through the word of God. I hope you'll do that. Verse 12. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, oh, and it does. And if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, oh my goodness, it does. How much more? How much more? How greater will their full inclusion mean? All right, so what is he talking about? All right, another translation puts it this way. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches? That's the idea. How much greater? We see the riches here, but how? This, okay, this is what disobedience, this is what disobedient Israel brought us. What might obedient Israel bring us? Huh? That's the idea. So the two phrases in verse 12, if their trespass means riches for the world, if their failure means riches for the Gentiles. Beloved, those are synonymous. They're synonymous phrases. They're repeated for emphasis. So Paul is saying simply this. Listen, if Israel's rejection of her Messiah, if her failure, her trespass, has brought such riches to the Gentile world, to the Gentile world, and it certainly has. For Israel's temporary loss has clearly been the Gentiles' gain. Then her fullness or full inclusion will result in even greater riches for the Gentiles. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? I mean, how much better can it get than being saved from your sin, right? Oh. Well, in verse 15, the Apostle Paul using different words now, basically comes back to this idea. He restates that same truth we just found in verse 12, and he elaborates on it. Let your eyes glance down. Look at the passage, verse 15. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? All right. We're going to get a little technical, okay? So, stay with me. Stay with me. The how much more or the much greater riches of verse 12, which Israel's fullness or full inclusion will bring to the Gentiles, okay, are defined in verse 15 as life from the dead. As life from the dead. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, there are a few ways that this verse has been interpreted. But I'm going to go with the most traditional way that it has been interpreted with those who understand it to refer what you, what you might just naturally think it refers to, which is resurrection, the resurrection. Uh, specifically, though, I'm going to tell you that it's the resurrection unto life, the resurrection unto life. Jesus speaks of two resurrections in John 5, 29, right? Uh, the wicked are also resurrected, beloved. 
The wicked are resurrected, those apart from Christ, those without salvation. They're resurrected unto judgment, unto condemnation. Uh, Believers, the children of God, are resurrected unto life. That will take place after the return of Christ in glory. Revelation 20, verse 5. So I believe that this reference here, uh, it's a a reference to the resurrection, but more to the point, it refers to the blessed life that will follow that resurrection. It refers to the blessed life, because it's a resurrection unto life, that will follow that resurrection. Well, what is the glorious life, or what what is that life? What is that resurrection life? Well, that life is life in the kingdom of God. It's life in the kingdom of God. So then I would understand Paul's reference to life from the dead as ultimately being a reference to life in that kingdom. Life in that kingdom. Then, that then is the much greater riches which Israel's fullness will bring to the Gentiles. Are you with me? So life from the dead, it is the resurrected life, life on, being resurrected unto life. That is life in the kingdom, that resurrection occurring in, in Revelation 20, verse 5, proceeding the great kingdom. And uh, that is the greater riches that Paul is talking about here that Israel's fulfillment will bring to the Gentiles. As one writer puts it, what could be greater than salvation except the final resurrection that ushers in the eternal kingdom. Kingdom. Just FYI, the kingdom is not here. It's not here. It's not here yet, guys. Uh, We are awaiting the kingdom. Okay? So having said that, let me try to make sense of all this for you. The fullness. That's how the uh, NIV translates that passage, or full inclusion of Israel, ESV. Full inclusion or fullness of Israel, verse 12, or their acceptance, as Paul refers to it in verse 15, okay, should be understood as the time of Israel's full restoration. It is a time coming in the future that is predicted and spoken about in the Old Testament. It is a time when the unbelieving nation of Israel repents of its unbelief and in faith embraces Jesus Christ as their Messiah. It is at that time when the unbelieving majority of Israel experiences conversion and joins the believing remnant. Verse 26, and all Israel will be saved. Verse 26 of chapter 11, we haven't gotten there yet. So the New International Reader's Version interprets the end of verse 12 of Romans 11 this way, and I think this works. What greater riches will come when all Israel turns to God? Okay? Turns to God. Now, when that great event occurs, beloved, the glorious kingdom promised long ago to Israel will then become a reality on earth. It will be a time when the world will experience the personal reign of Messiah from his throne in Jerusalem. Okay? That's real. Real, beloved. These are events that are going to occur, that are going to take place. Uh, One pastor said this, God will provide for his nation Israel. That is, when they repent, 
When there's a national repentance, he will provide for his nation Israel her long-awaited kingdom. And those of us who have been united by faith to Israel's Messiah, who's that? That's us, that's that. Well, Israel's Messiah is Christ. Yes, but who's us that has been united to Israel's Messiah? Through faith. Gentiles, baby. It's Gentiles. It's us. It's us. That is, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, it's us. We will join her there. It's her, it's her kingdom, beloved. It's her kingdom. It was promised to her. And the Bible, just to, to, rem, just to, to kind of open up your mind a little bit about what that looks like, this kingdom. The Bible characterizes uh, that time period, this kingdom in this way, righteousness and peace. Huh? Could you use those words to describe our current conditions? Not even close, beloved. Psalm, you can write these down, look them up later, but Psalm 72.7 or Isaiah 11, uh, 2 through 4, all righteousness and peace. That's, those are the words that characterize this kingdom. Holiness will be common rather than uncommon. <laughs> What's common now? Wickedness. Wickedness is the common denominator now. Uh, Zechariah 14, 20 through 21. The curse will be lifted and paradise regained. Wow. There's a curse on the earth, beloved. It's going to be lifted in the kingdom. Isaiah 65, 20 through 25. Sickness will be removed. Any hallelujahs there? Sickness, I mean, it's just wiping our, it's just take, man, this thing's nasty. It's gone throughout, right? But that's just, that's nothing compared to sickness that takes someone down to death, who takes away loved uh, family members. Sickness will be removed because the king will be reigning from his throne in Jerusalem, Isaiah 29, 18. The animal kingdom will once again experience peace. He laughed. He laughed. I don't know why you laugh, but it, they'll experience. No, this, the Bible describes this. Isaiah 11, 6 through 9. And we see again, Romans 8, 21. There will be a peace even within the animal kingdom. Have you ever like watched the animal channel or anything like that? There's no peace going on out there, baby. It is, you know, the strongest survive because they're ripping each other apart. No longer, beloved. I can't even, it's so hard for me to even get my mind around that because I don't know. I, all I know is, is a world at war with itself, with each other, killing, murder, mayhem. Uh, lawbreakers, by the way, will be punished and justice will be, truly be done. How about that? How about that? That made you smile, didn't it? I know it did. Uh, he, you know, he's a teacher in a school and he's constantly dealing with lawbreakers, <laughs> lawbreakers, and he would love nothing more for them to be punished and justice to be served, but he has his uh, limits, right? You have your, yes, Brent. But that will not be the case. And beloved, how many times do we watch evil go unpunished and no justice occur? Huh? Yeah. Well, that won't be the case in the kingdom, Isaiah 9, 7, 11, 5. The Shekinah glory will again fill the temple. All right, so for us who aren't Jewish, that doesn't mean a whole lot, but it's significant. It's significant. Ezekiel 43, 4 through 5. Here's a good one. Satan will be bound. Anybody who tells you that Satan is bound now, I don't know what they're thinking. That, some people say that. He's not bound. You, listen, <laughs> you'll know when he's bound. And in the kingdom, he will be bound. Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3. How about that, huh? No more having to deal with that maniac. 
that enemy of God and enemy of every Christian, the horrors of war will cease. Beloved, we, the horrors of war will not cease until the kingdom. I'm just going to tell you that. They're not going to cease. This idea of that the world will eventually reach some uh, state of peace if we can just work it out and be kind to one another and bend over backwards and give them everything and surrender our, our sovereignty and everything else, it's nonsense. Uh, if there's any peace, it'll be a false peace, and then all-out war like you've never seen it will break out. The horrors of war will not cease until the king returns, and he puts it down. And that's Micah 4, 3. And finally, peace and prosperity will abound. They will, it will abound, okay? Amos 9, 13, Micah 4, 4. Beloved, the bottom line is this. It is a time of unprecedented blessings for all the citizens of that kingdom, which includes, by the way, every Gentile who has put their faith in Israel's Messiah. But we need to remember that the coming of the kingdom is inextricably inextricably linked to Israel's full restoration. One will not occur without the other. Hey, you want the kingdom to come? Pray for the repentance of Israel. Therefore, you and I as Gentiles, beloved, we have a massive stake in Israel's future, a massive stake. For our future blessings are attached to God's future restoration of that nation. You with me? You see, when we look at all that, and then we ask questions like I think the title of the sermon is, well, I didn't ask a question there. (laughs) I just made a statement. There is a future for Israel. But last week I said, is God done with Israel? Is he finished? Right away, you know then. You know that answer. You wouldn't give any, 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 uh, yeah, goodness gracious. You wouldn't, you wouldn't give way to anything that would suggest otherwise, that God is not working something out. And then you learn, wow, God's so serious about this. His saving of us is in part, in part, to bring these people back to himself. Wow. One writer closes it out like this. As Israel's trespass and rejection, as we've, we saw in the first century, trigger, actually just leading up to that, but that was the height of it, trigger the stage of salvation history in which Paul and we are located, a stage in which God is specially blessing Gentiles, okay? That's what's occurring in the age of the church, a special blessing upon Gentiles. So Israel's fullness and acceptance will trigger the climactic end of salvation history. Paul insists on the vital continuing significance of Israel in salvation history against tendencies among Gentile Christians to discard Israel from any other or any further role in the plan of God. There is a glorious future for Israel, beloved, and by God's grace, we, the church, we who are trusting in and following the Lord Jesus Christ, we will get to take part in it. Let's pray. Father God, your word says that all of your word is profitable, all of it, every bit of it, from Genesis to Revelation. Father, as we come now to this section of Romans, let us remember those words. 
Let us remember that this section on the nation of Israel is profitable to us. Let us learn from it. Let us learn about your faithfulness, your loyalty, your love, your sovereignty. This is amazing, Father. We would look at the situation with Israel and say, all is lost, but that is not the case. The situation with Israel is according to your sovereign plan. And in the midst of all that yuckiness and mess, their disobedience, their rebellion, you bring out of that this incredible blessing, Gentile salvation on a worldwide level. Unbelievable. Only you, God, only you could take catastrophe and the man of sin and turn it to accomplish your good and wise purposes. Only you could do that. I look at these passages. I see your plan unfolding as it's described in the scriptures. And here as we, we watch all of these events taking place and, and yet awaiting future events that the word speaks of, Father, we stand back in awe. You are sovereign. You are bringing about exactly what you have determined from eternity past. Your glory your greatness, your mercy, your faithfulness, all of it will be put on display forever, for all eternity. The only thing we will be doing, the only thing we will be able to do is just to praise your mighty and holy name. No one, no one in heaven is going to be, in the kingdom will be talking about themselves, how awesome they are. No one. All we will be doing is just with our mouths dropped to the floor. We'll stand in awe of you and Christ Jesus, our Lord. Father, help us. Help us as we, as we work through these chapters. They're amazing. And I know, I know our own sinfulness and, and everything else can get in the way. And, oh, I don't know. It's kind of uh, boring. I don't know. Lord, I pray that we would repent of that. I pray that we would pray that you would open our eyes and our minds to the glory of these chapters. It is amazing. Father, help help it to help us worship you more. For you are worthy. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.